I invite you to turn in God's word to the book of Mark, chapter 5. The book of Mark, chapter 5. Last Sunday, we looked at the last few verses, six or seven verses, in chapter 4, in which we read of Christ's calming of the sea. Uh, The narrative, the incident, raises an important question a question that I didn't have time to deal with last Sunday and that I want to deal with just briefly right now before we move on. Uh, It's this. Was it sinful for the disciples to be afraid of the storm? It's a good question. Very good question. As a matter of fact, someone asked me that question after last Sunday's sermon. Uh, Was it sinful for the disciples to be afraid of the storm? The answer to that question lies in three truths. Pretty simple truths, pretty straightforward. The first is this. There is such a thing as natural fear. There is such a thing as natural fear. And so let's suppose I walk out of my house one morning and I see a rattlesnake. I perceive the rattlesnake to be hazardous to my well-being, dangerous. And so I fear it, and I avoid it. That is natural fear. We are made that way. We are wired that way. It is an essential part of human nature, and it is an essential part of survival. We won't survive long without natural fear. The second truth is this. There is such a thing as sinful Fear. And so let's suppose I walk out of my house one morning, I see a rattlesnake. I perceive the rattlesnake to be dangerous. I fear it, I avoid it, and then I decide I'm never going to leave my house ever again. That is what? Sinful fear. Now, what's the difference between natural fear and sinful fear? This is the third truth. Natural fear becomes sinful fear when we deify the object of our fear. Did you catch that? Natural fear becomes sinful fear when we deify the object of our fear. By that I mean natural fear, my fear of a perceived threat becomes sinful fear when I ascribe to the object of my fear more power than it actually possesses. When I actually ascribe to the object of my fear more power than God's power. And so I fear whatever the object of that fear is, I fear it, and that fear takes control of me. And that fear shakes my faith in God. So now think of the disciples. And think of the disciples in that fishing boat, in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. Think of that storm hitting them. They're afraid. They're afraid. Why? Because they perceive a threat to their well-being. That is a natural fear. Undoubtedly, they'd rather not be in the midst of the storm. That is a natural fear. They would like to avoid it. But their natural fear becomes sinful fear. Why? They deify the storm. 
And at that moment, they ascribe to the storm more power than it actually has. And that fear controls them. And that fear shakes their faith in the very one who is with them in the boat, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereby they are no longer looking to Christ. They are overcome by their fear of the storm. Did you get all of that? Natural fear becomes sinful fear when we deify the object of our fear. It really is a subtle form of idolatry, sinful fear. It is a subtle form of idolatry. Why? Simply for the following reason. When we struggle with, when we experience sinful fear, at that moment we are reasoning to ourselves, subconsciously or consciously, this thing is actually greater than God. The object of my fear is greater than God. And it is now my fear that controls me, not God. And my fear actually shakes my faith in God. Let me give you three examples to really bring this home. Three examples that I was meditating over this past week. The first is this. Let's suppose I fear of rejection. Rejection is painful. Who likes experiencing rejection? Nobody likes that. Uh, I have a fear of rejection. But my fear of of rejection means that um, I am hesitant, if not downright um, opposed to, developing close relationships with other people. I fear rejection. Therefore, I, I refuse to develop meaningful, close relationships with others. It means I can't even open up to my spouse, my husband or my wife. It means I struggle with displays of physical affection. You see, in that scenario, that situation, my fear, my fear of rejection has become sinful fear, whereby I have deified the object of my fear, and it is that fear that now controls me, not my faith in God. Are you getting this? I'll give you a second example. Let's suppose I, I fear a disease, germs. That's normal. That's natural fear. Who wants to be sick? A sickness, illness, disease is painful, so I fear it. But my fear of disease means that I refuse to leave my house. Uh, my fear of disease means I refuse to touch anything that anyone else has ever touched. My fear of disease means I spend countless hours glued to Google, self-diagnosing every ache and pain I experience. You see, what has happened in that case? My sinful fear, the object of my fear, has become an idol. That fear is now controlling me. And that fear has shaken my faith in God. Let me give you a third example. I fear losing my spouse. We all fear death. That's natural. I fear the death of my spouse. That is entirely natural. But my fear of losing my spouse means my spouse can never go away overnight without me. It means I can't work more than a five-minute drive from home. It means I call my spouse every 30 minutes from work to check in on her, check in on him, whatever the case may be. Do you see what has happened? A natural fear has become sinful fear, whereby that fear is actually controlling me and has shaken my faith in God. Am I speaking to anybody here this morning? 
I hazard a guess I'm speaking to a great many here this morning. We all wrestle with, we all struggle with sinful fear. What is the answer? What is the solution? What is the remedy? Friend, if you are a, a, a bundle of sinful fear, you do not need more couch time. You do not need medication. And you do not need to get in touch with your inner self. You need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all. We must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must take to heart precisely what we meditated upon last Lord's Day. He is a glorious Savior. He is a glorious Shepherd. And He is a glorious Sovereign. And He alone will vanquish all our sinful fear. So if you wrestle with that, as I wrestle with that on occasion, yes, I'll admit it, I'll confess it. The answer is a good dose of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worthy object of our faith. We sang it a few moments ago, one of my favorite songs. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. A glorious Savior, a glorious Shepherd, and a glorious Sovereign. So much for that question. Follow along now as I pick up the narrative, Mark's narrative, in the fifth chapter, the first verse. They, that is Christ and his disciples, they've been crossing the Sea of Galilee. They've experienced that terrible storm. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, And on the mountains he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he, that is Christ, was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Uh, Just get inside the disciples' mind for a minute. I empathize with these guys. Uh, they, They have just spent one unforgettable night on the sea. They've come through the storm. They're just trying to catch their breath. They disembark from this boat. Suddenly they face this madman. And you just imagine what they're thinking to themselves. What, what, what is next? What's coming next? This is another strange incident, another odd incident. And how I want to approach it with you is as follows. I want us to focus in on six strange things. So it's a strange incident, and I want to give you six reasons why it is strange. And then once we've got our minds around that, we'll, we'll apply it, we'll drive it home by asking two questions. Two questions which the text demands of us. We cannot read this text, we cannot move on without answering the two questions. The text requires this of us. But we begin with why this text is strange. Six strange things. The first is this. A strange place. They're in a strange place. Look again at the first verse. Perhaps it escaped your notice. They came to the other side of the sea. So they have sailed from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee to the southeast side corner of the Sea of Galilee. They are now in the country of the Gerasenes. You know what that means? They are no longer in Jewish territory, folks. They have entered Gentile territory. They are now in a region known as the Decapolis. Decapolis, Deca, ten. Polis, city. Ten cities. Ten Greek city-states. They are in the midst of Gentiles. This is a divine appointment. Uh, This is Christ's doing. Why? Because he is sending a very clear message to his disciples. He is sending a very clear message to these Gentiles. Yes, the kingdom has come. He has inaugurated the kingdom. This kingdom is not restricted to Jews. This kingdom knows no ethnic boundaries. This kingdom is going to bring in the Gentiles. This kingdom is going to bring in and include people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And so here we have Christ, we might say, here we have his first foray as the king into Gentile territory. Why? Because he's after one man, and only one man at this point in his ministry. So they're in a strange place. And notice, secondly, there is a strange man. Mark is very descriptive here. His description begins in verse 2, and he tells us right at the outset that this man has an unclean spirit. Later, he'll tell us plural is a more apt description of, of, of this demon. There are demons Demons whose name collectively is Legion. So this is a strange man. He has an unclean spirit. He is demon-possessed. Notice four things. Beginning in verse 3, all the way through to verse 5, four things, characteristics, that Mark wants us to know, understand about this man. The first is this, right at the outset of verse 3. He lived among the tombs. 
In other words, he has isolated himself. In other words, he has cut himself off from human society. Think about it. I'm guessing this is a man who at one time owned a home. I'm guessing, I think this is a pretty good guess, that this is a man who at one time had a job, a vocation, farmer, carpenter, something like that. This is most certainly a man who had a family. Parents and siblings at the very least, perhaps he was a married man with children of his own. But the affliction, this demon possession is to such an extent that he is no longer able to function as a normal member of a community, of a family, of society. He has cut himself off. He has removed himself. And he is living among the tombs. Second thing I want you to notice about this strange man. It begins in verse 3 and carries into verse 4 that he breaks chains and shackles in pieces. No one is able to subdue him. And so undoubtedly his, his family members, his loved ones, his friends, fellow community members, out of concern for his well-being, on different occasions they have sought to subdue him. They have attempted to control him. They, they have brought out the strongest thing they have in their possession, chains and shackles. They have bound this man. And yet when legion comes upon him, he simply crushes, breaks these chains and shackles into pieces. He is, in a word, beyond human control. Third thing I want you to notice about this man brings us into verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. I'm going to use my sanctified imagination. Last week somebody asked me, what does that mean, sanctified imagination? I don't know, I just kind of like the expression, sanctified imagination. I do, it does mean something. I don't have time to go into it now. Using our sanctified imagination. I like to use that once in a while. What is this man crying out? Uh, what is he exclaiming? Cries of anguish. Cries of pain. Cries of torment. Cries for help? Maybe. Blasphemies against God? Most certainly. As he's under the influence of these demons. And so you can hear audibly these ear-piercing cries emanating from this man living among the tombs as he expresses his torment and pain and suffering and anguish. And the fourth thing Mark tells us about this man, right at the end of verse 5, he bruises himself with stones. I think Matthew and Luke tell us he cuts himself with stones. This is disconcerting. As human beings, uh, we have a natural antipathy to pain. We don't like pain. That's a good thing. And therefore, we seek to avoid pain. One of the first signs that an individual has lost all sense, one of the first indicators that an individual has entered into a realm, a dangerous place, is the pursuit of physical pain. And so here you have a man who, rather than acting as a human, Shine away from pain. Under the influence of these demons, actually seeks out pain as he mutilates himself, bruising himself, gashing himself with these stones. This is a strange man. Now, the third strange thing I want us to notice is this a strange question. Verses 6 through 9. 
The Lord Jesus and the disciples, they disembark from the boat. Immediately, having disembarked from the boat, this man from his vantage point sees the Lord Jesus, sees the disciples, sees what's going on. He runs. He is compelled. He is constrained to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. He prostrates himself before him at the end of verse 6. He cries out with a loud voice. These are not cries of torment. These are not cries of anguish. These are not blasphemies. He poses a question. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you, I beg you by God, do not torment me. Fascinating question. What business What do you have to do with me? It is legion speaking, Jesus, son of the most high God. A little tricky here, stay with me. The Greek translation, son of God most high, we find that expression, God most high, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, the exact same uh, Greek phraseology. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, the author of the book of Hebrews is quoting from, and if you were here early enough this morning, you saw the scripture meditation on the screen, Genesis 14. Why? What happens in Genesis 14? There is a battle, and in the midst of that battle, invading armies in the land of Canaan take Lot captive, other people as well, and possessions. Abraham hears of it. He gets his household servants together, and off they go in chase in pursuit of these armies. God gives him the victory. Abraham rescues Lot, all the other people, takes the possessions. He returns to the land of Canaan, and in Genesis 14, we read that a man goes out to meet Abraham. His name is? Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem, and he says, Blessed be God, most high. God most high, El Elyon. In Hebrew, El simply means power, strength, might. Elyon in Hebrew magnifies that power. And so he is saying, Blessed be God most high. In other words, blessed be the strongest of the strong. Blessed be the mightiest of the mighty. And then he adds another phrase there in Genesis 14. Why is he the strongest of the strong? Why is he the mightiest of the mighty? Why is he God most high? It is because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. It is the phrase here, folks. And Legion knows in whose presence he now grovels. Legion knows in whose presence he now finds himself and he is compelled to come. And he asked this question, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And notice the rest of his phrase in the remainder of verse 7, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Matthew records it in slightly different terms. Have you come here, Legion says, according to Matthew, have you come here to torment me before the time? Ooh, that is loaded. What is Legion acknowledging? First of all, he is acknowledging that a day of torment is coming for him. He is recognizing that a day of reckoning, a day of judgment is coming. He is acknowledging, secondly, that that day of reckoning, that day of of torment is set for an appointed time. And he is acknowledging, thirdly, that the torment he will experience at the appointed time will be at the hands of the Son of God Most High. 
I know who you are. Why are you here? What business do we have with each other? It's early yet. There is an appointed time. There is a appointed time when you will torment me. Have you come to torment me before that appointed time? Do you understand? Do you see how packed with significance this cry is emanating, figuratively speaking, from the lips of Legion? This pack of demons who possess this man, constrained under compulsion. Understand this, friend. They have no choice in the matter. The master is present. The king has entered the scene, and they are compelled to grovel before him and beg, do not torment me before the appointed time. Oh, a strange question. A strange question loaded with significance as it points to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice fourthly, there's a strange request. Christ orders Legion to come out of the man. And as he orders him to come out, verse 9, he asks him specifically, what is your name? As if he didn't already know. And he replied, my name is Legion. Why? We are many. Now here is the strange request. It brings us into verse 10. And he begged him, that is, Legion begged Christ earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged Second time that word has been used. They begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. They are begging the Son of God Most High to send them into the pigs. Why does Legion want to enter the pigs? A couple of reasons. I think the first is kind of obvious. He wants to kill something, right? That's what they're all about. They're on a seek and destroy mission. Why not a herd of pigs? The second is this, and it's far more subtle and far more evil. It is this. They want to tempt the people of the land. They want to destroy that herd of swine, that herd of pigs. Why? They know this will pose a temptation for the people of the land when they see that it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who has ripped their livelihood right out of their hands. How will they respond to that? What will they think of that when they discover it was this man who ultimately is responsible for the death of their 2,000 pigs? Now, why does Christ allow it, knowing that? Christ allows it. Christ grants it. Christ commands it for a couple of reasons. First is this. He wants visible verification of this miracle that has happened. Yes, this man, as he is healed and as Legion leaves, this man is going to be found sitting there, In his right mind. He wants the man to witness. He wants the man to see. For that matter, he wants all surrounding him to see that those demons, legion, have indeed departed the man. There's the visible evidence of the miracle. You now have 2,000 pigs hurling themselves wildly down the banks of an incline into the sea, killing themselves. There's no denying what has happened. There is no denying to this man. There is no denying for the disciples. There is no denying for the herdsmen. There is no denying for everyone who will come and look at what has happened. That this man is now different. And the demons have indeed left. Because we know exactly where they have gone. The second reason is this. Far more subtle but far more important. That just as the demons want to enter the herd of pigs in order to tempt these people. 
The Lord Jesus Christ grants it. Why? Because he wants to test these people. He wants to see what is in their heart. He already knows. He wants them to see what is in their hearts. He wants them to see, and and we dare not miss this, he wants these people to see that they are in far greater bondage than this man ever was to the demons. Do you understand that, friend? Demonic possession is not the worst thing going. We are in far greater bondage already. It is bondage to sin. Sin which holds sway over every faculty, whereby we're unable to think rightly. We do not discern spiritual truth as we ought. And we most certainly do not prize spiritual truth as we ought. And the Lord Jesus is going to show these people exactly what is in their hearts. Oh, it is a strange request. And yet a request loaded with significance. Now notice the fifth strange thing. There is a strange reaction. Brings us to verse 14 through to verse 17. And so the herdsmen, they've seen it. What do they do? Expectedly. They fled, and they begin to tell it near and far. What happens in the rest of verse 14? People come to see what it was that had happened. And what had happened? Two things. Skip down to verse 16. And those who had seen it, so the herdsmen, the disciples, others undoubtedly, described it to them. So all these people who come, notice they describe two things very important. They describe, firstly, what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And secondly, they describe what had happened to the pigs. Two things going on here. And so this is the evidence that people face. This is the evidence that confronts them as they come from the towns, the villages, the cities, the countryside. As people are running here, there, everywhere, exclaiming what has happened, something marvelous, something wonderful, something inexplicable. We quite can't put our finger on it. A crowd gathers And immediately they are confronted with two overwhelming, undeniable pieces of evidence. Over here, what do we have? We have a man. Folks, they know this man. They've known him for years. They know he's running around naked in the tombs. They know he's gashing himself with stones. They hear his cries. They've tried to subdue him. They've tried to bind him. They've put those chains and shackles on him, only to see the demons come upon him, break those shackles, attack them, and then drive this man off again into the tombs. Matthew tells us, or maybe it's Luke, that people are afraid to pass by there. That no one will use those roadways, no one will use those pathways that take them anywhere near where this man dwells. They know who he is. They've seen what he has done. They have heard his cries of torment and anguish. They have heard his blasphemies. Now here he is, the same man. They cannot deny it. He's sitting there. He's quiet. He's peaceful. Mark tells us he is in his right mind. Something has changed. Now they have a second piece of evidence. Pigs. Gentiles, right? Big herds of pigs. Maybe for their own consumption. Certainly to sell. Maybe to, uh, to help uh, sell to, to Roman garrisons. That sort of thing. 
They have this second piece of evidence. At one time, there was a herd of 2,000 pigs grazing, eating, feeding, whatever pigs do on the side of this hill. Now there is this bloated mass of pig flesh in the sea. We cannot deny that. We cannot deny that something has changed in this man. We cannot deny that something has changed in these pigs. We cannot deny that this man was demon-possessed. He no longer is. We cannot deny that the demons have seized these pigs and driven them to do something inexplicable. We cannot deny that there is now a stranger in our midst. We cannot deny that the demon himself addressed this stranger as the Son of God Most High. Friends, here is a most strange reaction. What do they do? They beg him to leave. They beg him to leave. Now the sixth and final thing I want you to notice. A strange command. It begins in verse 18. It takes us to the end of the narrative. As he, Christ, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Nothing surprising there. I see you've got a band of disciples, followers. Let let me join. I want to follow you. And then there's a command. Verse 19, he did not permit him. But here's the strange command said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Mercy. God God is good. God bestows, when God acts in any way toward us, it is an expression of his goodness. It is an expression of grace because we never merit his goodness. That is grace. And so grace is God's goodness in action toward us. It is unmerited. Mercy takes it to a whole different level. Mercy isn't merely God's grace toward those who haven't earned it. Mercy is God's grace, God's goodness toward those who have actually earned the opposite. Do you understand that? The Lord Jesus did not owe this man anything. We must understand that. This is not a man who was looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a man who wanted to be godly deep down somewhere inside. This is not a man who had set out in life in the pursuit of truth. No, this is a man who is possessed by demons. This is a man who is possessed by something far greater, under bondage to something far greater, his own sin. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ reminding this man, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to tell people, starting with your family and others, what the Lord, me, what I have done for you, and how I have been merciful to you. My friend, you did not deserve this miracle. My friend, you did not earn this miracle. You did not merit this miracle. As a matter of fact, my friend, I want you to understand, you deserve the opposite. But I have been merciful to you. And I want you to go and tell others. A strange command, not really when we remember that this man is what? He is a Gentile. Here's a convert. Christ has come a long way across the sea for this one man, a convert. Now he wants him to go, despite the rejection of all these other people, he wants him to go to tell his family, he wants him to go and tell others of what the Lord, what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for him. Why? Because Christ is not finished in Decapolis. 
We fast forward a couple of chapters, chapter 7, and we find the Lord Jesus where? Back in Decapolis. What is he doing with this man? What is he using this man for? To prepare the way. To sow some seed. To ready his people, those whom he will call in Decapolis from among these Gentiles into his kingdom. It seems to be a strange command. It isn't a strange command. It is the king exercising his authority. It is the king inaugurating his kingdom. It is the king bringing this man, making him a participant in his kingdom, telling him now to go. Why? Because Christ knows he's going to be back. And when he's back, there will be good soil ready to receive what he has to say and his message of repent and believe in the gospel of God. So a strange place, a strange man, a strange question, A strange request, a strange reaction, a strange command. Two very obvious questions. We we, we just can't walk away from the text. As we read it, and as it begins to to make sense, and the the light goes on, and, and we understand exactly what is happening here, what is transpiring, we have to ask two questions of ourselves. We can't move on without asking these questions. The first is this. Do you see Christ's majesty and mercy? And so the story demands of us, requires of us, that we ask ourselves that question. Do we see Christ's majesty and mercy? His majesty comes out in the very first, very first verse. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And there we see his sovereignty. That the Lord Jesus, it was the Lord Jesus who wanted to depart from the other shore. It was the Lord Jesus that brought and directed this boat across the Sea of Galilee. It is the Lord Jesus who brought them to this point at this time. Why? Because he has a divinely appointed rendezvous with this man. There is his majesty, divine sovereignty. We see his majesty later in verse 13. His authority. So he gave them, the start of verse 13, remember Legion is pleading with him, begging him. Do not miss the intent and the full weight of that phrase at the outset of verse 13. So he gave them permission. Understand that, friends. Demons are not free to do whatever they want. They are only free to do what they want insofar as the Lord Jesus Christ grants them permission. Satan himself is not free to do whatever he wants. Satan is free to act. Satan is free to afflict. Satan is free to tempt insofar as he is given permission by the Son of God Most High. We have unrivaled, unquestioned, absolute authority. He gave them permission. There we see the majesty of Christ. Divine sovereignty, divine authority. And we see, secondly, His mercy, emerging again from verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy, compassion. I I have acted toward you in a manner contrary to, opposite to what you actually deserve. I haven't simply been good to you apart from the question of merit. No, I have been good to you against demerit, despite the fact that you are a rebel, despite the fact that you are a rebel against me, I have 
been merciful. And here we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think it through. Let me get even more pointed in terms of this question, in terms of Mark's book as a whole. The Lord Jesus Christ walks in our flesh. We see that. It's the incarnation. The Lord Jesus heals the leper and the paralytic. He gives sight to the blind, speech to the mute, and life to the dead. Christ experiences thirst, hunger, weariness. He's betrayed, he's arrested, and he's condemned. He's crowned with thorns, scourged with whips, and pierced with nails. He hangs on a shameful cross, bearing our shame. He pours out his soul unto death. He is punished that we might be pardoned. He is cursed that we might be blessed. He is wounded that we might be healed. He is condemned that we might be justified. Friend, do you see Christ? Do you behold him with the eyes of faith? Do you see his majesty and his mercy? Firstly, yes, as revealed in this text. Secondly, yes, as revealed in the incarnation and his entire ministry from the manger to the cross. How his entire life breathes forth mercy. The second question we must ask. Again, I don't invent these questions. I, I really believe that the verses demand us to ask it. It is this, friend. Do you cherish pigs more than Christ? You know, that's actually the main message of the text. Do you cherish, do I cherish pigs more than Why do I ask that? Because that is precisely what afflicted these people who heard of this miracle. These people know something of Christ's majesty. His majesty over these demons, his sovereignty and his authority. They are now faced with something of his mercy. And and what he has done for this man. They are confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God most High. They have clear evidence of his majesty. They have clear evidence of his mercy. And their cry is what? They beg him to leave them alone. Why? Because they cherish their pigs more than Christ. Do you understand, my friend? That is the message. That is the message of the text. The, the individuals, the people in bondage in the first place, isn't the man to legion. It is this multitude of countless people who come and are now face to face with the undeniable reality of the majesty and mercy of Christ. And they want nothing to do with Christ. All they can think about is the loss of their pigs. Do you love something, friend? Here we get down to what it really means to be a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love something more than Christ? Do I love something more than Christ? What do you think about? What shapes your dreams and ambitions? What do you think will make you happy? I mean, really. Do you cherish your indulgence in pot and beer more than the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you cherish your unsaved girlfriend or boyfriend more than the Lord Jesus Christ? 
You cherish your pursuit of a million dollars more than the Lord Jesus Christ. You cherish your self-righteousness more than the Lord Jesus Christ. You cherish your sexual experiences more than the Lord Jesus Christ. You cherish your self-exaltation more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, do I, do we cherish our comfort and leisure more than the Lord Jesus Christ? Hear this, please. To put anything before Christ, to choose anything above Christ, to cherish anything more than Christ is sheer madness. That is the message of the text. This man is now sitting in his right mind. His fellow countrymen who come and are confronted with undeniable majesty and undeniable mercy, they are out of their minds. They are mad because they cherish their pigs more than the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, have you really been brought to that point where you understand there is no greater glory, there is no greater excellency, there is no greater beauty? Have you come to that point where you realize under the conviction and the illumination of the Spirit of God that the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether lovely and the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether good? We sing the stanza of that beautiful song. And with this I'll close. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Pray with me. Our Lord, you alone created the heavens and the earth. And you alone cause them to remain. By your appointment, the stars remain in the sky. And the waters remain in the sea. Our Lord, your hands have made everything, including us. We are but creatures. We are but sinful creatures. Let your mercy come to us. Let your steadfast love abide with us. Your word is fixed forever in the heavens. Grant us understanding so that we might learn your word, obey your commands, and cherish your promises. In the matchless name of Christ, we do ask it. Amen.